Good morning, church. If you would turn to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, Esther chapter 2. Those of you who are joining us as guests this morning for the first time, welcome. So glad that you're here. Friends on live stream, so glad that you're joining us as well as we study. And we're here in the second week of Esther. We're going to be in this series for for several more weeks and just kind of pick up where we left off last week. I hope you were here for last Sunday because it kind of laid some of the groundwork of understanding the big picture of what's going on in the book of Esther, why it's written, Feast of Purim, and all of what that means. But we pick up in chapter 2, so if you would follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women. That's his his title and that's gonna come up a number of different times, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. So pause there for a second. That doesn't mean that Mordecai is 100 years old because that happened 100 years ago under King Nebuchadnezzar. What it it means is in solidarity with his family and his people, they were carried out of Jerusalem 100 years ago, and here they find themselves in Susa. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken. There's that passive verb. Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shaaskaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the son, the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. 
When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in palace in place of Vashti. And the king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, were guarded the entrance. They became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So it's... Um, it's an interesting story, it's a heavy story, and it's a story that has a lot of dark elements injected into it. It's a true story, so it really happened just like it was written here. I, I heard a veteran pastor say many years ago, and he said this to a conference, a room full of pastors, and he said, um, he was actually talking about the text in the Old Testament that prophesied about the coming Messiah and what Messiah would be like. And in that particular text, it was prophesying that Messiah would come and he would not break the bruised reed, and he would not quench the smoldering wick. He would nurse the dying flame back to life. He was tender with the weak and the struggling and the vulnerable. And what the pastor said was that sometimes pastors have an instinct to only celebrate the go-getters, the spiritual overachievers, those who are running the race, who are sprinting, 25 miles an hour running down the track. And he said, but we need to learn that there's more ways to see the activity of God in a person's life. It's not just that they're faithful when they're running the race. Maybe some of them are faithful because they're walking with the Lord. And maybe some whose feet are very heavy in the midst of struggle and trial, maybe they can't even feel that they can put one foot in front of the other, but they can lean on the Lord, they can lean on his everlasting arms and all three of those can be a picture of a healthy Christian, a Christian who's running the race, a Christian who's walking with God and a Christian who's leaning on the everlasting arms. And the reason why I wanted to start there is because I read a chapter like Esther chapter two and it makes me wanna say something that as Christians and sometimes in the church we don't always say. Sometimes in the church we, um, we put the hard stuff in the fine print and we try to keep everything upbeat and we don't say things like what becomes obvious here, which is um, it's hard to be a Christian. We can own that, right? That, that Jesus didn't put that in the fine print. He put it in all caps so it wouldn't catch anybody off guard. In this world, you will bank on it. It will be hard in this world. It's a promise. 
The Apostle Peter would say, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you experience as though something strange is happening to you. This is par for the course. This is just Tuesday. This is what it's like to walk in a world that's hostile to the God that we love and serve to the, the Jesus that we worship, right? The Bible, what I love about the Bible, and I hope as Christians we resonate with this, is the Bible doesn't airbrush the world. It doesn't put some fake Instagram filter on the world and put it in its best possible light. It lets you see how ugly it can be, how dark things can really be. Esther 2 is a picture of life in the empire. And it's not a uniquely bad day in the life of the Persian Empire. It's just Tuesday. It's any other day. This is what it's like in Persia. And and Esther 2, I would suggest to you, dramatizes what it's been like for Christians to live in the world anywhere as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. It's hard to be a Christian. So that's how I'm framing our passage. What do we see here? We see Tuesday morning in the empire and what's it look like? It looks like oppression. Oppression is sort of the wallpaper of Susa in Esther chapter two. You know, sometimes Esther is represented, this story is retold in a way that kind of sounds like the Christian Cinderella story or the Old Testament Cinderella story. You know, uh, a poor Jewish girl who lives in the capital of the empire and, um, and she is swept up into the palace, ends up in the palace. She's in a kind of Persia's Got Talent competition. She does real well, outpaces all the other gals. And she's just chosen because she favor uh, comes to her from the king of the world. He brings her in. He puts a crown on her head. It's a big party. It's a big ball. Everybody's dancing. Taxes are cut. We'll see all that in our text, right? All kinds of awesome things happen. And then she happens to be there in this moment where something goes wrong. And then this, this brave Jewish girl has the courage to speak truth to power and she saves the Jewish people from an evil plot. And that's kind of the story. That's the way we retell the story. Problem is, that's not true. That's not the way it really went down. That's not the way it really felt back there. Xerxes is anything but Prince Charming. We saw him in chapter one, didn't we? Him and his drunken friends at a keg party and they're all sauced after seven days of hitting the wine, right? And then, and then he says, oh, you've seen all my fancy things. Now, now bring, in, bring in my bride and let her kind of turn about for the fellows and so that they can ogle at her. And she says, no, that's not happening. Queens don't do that. And she says, no. And then he says, well, then you're out. And he sends letters to everybody in the province to throw her under the bus. He publicly shames her in all 127 of his provinces. And then he deposes her as queen. She's out on the street, right? And so here he is at the beginning of our text. And it's almost like in verse one, it says, when his rage cooled down, he remembered Vashti. It's almost like he's looking back over his shoulder and saying, I probably overreacted. And we're going to see that trait in Xerxes throughout the book of Esther. He's this person who overreacts. He he gets very angry. He's capricious. He is arbitrary. He is evil, right? And, And so he overcompensates reckless decisions that are informed by terrible counsel. And that recipe just repeats itself over and over throughout the whole book. And speaking of latest counsel, you get his latest counsel right here in verse two. You see it? Before he's going to get his queen, he wants to get a harem. Verse two, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins, plural, for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of this kingdom so that they may gather 
all, so he casts a dragnet across the entire two million square miles, and he pulls all the beautiful virgins into the fortress of Susa, and he puts them under the supervision of Haggai. You see that? The king's eunuch, keeper of the women. And then the one who pleases the king gets to become the queen. It's a really unconventional approach for choosing a queen because these young women are taken, that's the language that's used, they are taken passively, and essentially, this is to put it crassly, but it's just the reality, they have to audition for the part. They are brought into the king's chambers and that's where he'll find out if this is the one. It's dark, he is not Prince Charming. This is an ugly world. This is a world of oppression. This is a world of abuse that we're looking at. Look at verse uh, 12. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments of oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. And then verse 14, look at that, because it says so much in so few words. When, when one of the women was called, she would, it says, go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shaaskaz, keeper of the concubines. And she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by her name. It's an ugly, ugly world back there in Persia. You think about our world though. When the Bible talks about the world, most often it's not talking about Geography. It's not making you look at your actual globe. When the Bible uses the term world, sometimes it uses it as a technical term, not for the bigness of the thing, but the badness of the thing. For God so loved the world. It's not like, hey, look how big his love that it could cover the entire world. It's look how great his love that he would love something so Dark, so ruined, so sinful, so evil, because you just keep reading John 3, 16, read a couple verses later, and it says, light entered the world, but the people loved darkness rather than light. So it's not about the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's talking about this fallen realm that's injected with sin, and it's down in the bones of the world. It's not sitting on the surface of things. It's down into everything. It's in all the philosophical ideas that come from human machinery and intellect. It's in all the systems and politics, all of it. There's, there's some vestige injected into every system where you can see it's fallen. Every culture on earth has signs of the fall. And the the background track, if you will, that's playing over Esther chapter two isn't, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's that's not playing over this text. I like that song, but it's not playing in Esther two. That song isn't playing in our world over much of what's going on in fallen cultures around the world. That song is not playing over the $97 billion porn industry. What a wonderful world is not playing over loudspeakers in Afghanistan today. The burning question as we consider oppressive evil in the world is, does God see? 
does he see? The whaling industry, ships that would go deep out into the Atlantic, and way back in the 1800s and the 19th century, there was hats, this adage among whalers that still lives on to this day. And it was that when you went way out into the dangers of the Atlantic, you get so far out that here was the saying, beyond 40 degrees south, there is no law. Beyond 50 degrees south, there is no God. Out here, it's pure chaos, piracy, weather you could never control. Out here, there's no God. You ever read the Psalms and you can hear them saying, God, where are you? Where are you? Do you see what's going on out here? It's like they find themselves beyond the 50th degree and they're saying, out here, it's like there's not just no law, it's like there's no God. Lord, Psalm 94, seven, they crush your people. You see this? That's what they're praying. They oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. And here's what they say in our ears. The Lord doesn't see it. You hear the world smack talk? God can't do anything about what we're doing to you. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. And it's like it was built into this song in Israel that they knew the world is screaming in our ears that God can't even help us out here. It's so oppressive and the powers are so strong we could never hold up against them. But the psalm goes on to say, you fools, when will you be wise? Does not he who formed the eye see? And that was their way of reinforcing their trust that God does see and there will be a reckoning and he will come to save many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. Look, God's word doesn't airbrush the world and neither does the Lord keep us guessing about what happened here to lead to all of this. You know, the questions that philosophers have been asking for thousands and thousands of years are, how did we get here? What's our origin? What's wrong with this place? What's wrong with the world? And how can what's wrong be made right? You know, the Bible answers those questions. How did we get here? What happened to this place and what happened to us? And how can all this wrong be made right? When we answer the question from Scripture, what happened here? You, you think about Esther chapter 1. Vashti says no to an unrighteous king who makes a demand that would have laid her nobility in the ground, right? Would have robbed her of her dignity. But back there in Genesis chapter three, humanity said no, not to an ungodly and unrighteous king, but to the one who made us, who made us in his image, who provided every good blessing for Adam and Eve in the garden, who was a good God, a merciful God. And they said no even though his commands would only have led to flourishing, and they said no to flourishing. They said no to peace and joy. And what happened when they decided to rebel against God? Sin and misery came flooding into the world, and it went down into the bones of the thing, right? Everything was affected. It, it makes sense, right? It's, if we turn, think about this, if we turn from the God who is life, what can there be but death? That just makes sense, which is why, by the way, the, the word in the Christian vocabulary, namely the word repentance, is not a negative word at all. Because repentance says, if we turn back to God again, what can there be 
but life. That's what repentance says. You turned away from life and there was only death. You turn away from death to life and there can only be joy in Christ, peace with this relationship that we have through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, right? And that, that brings into the center this, this story of the gospel that sits right in the middle of the Bible. It's what the whole Bible is about, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We turned away from God and we drank death like water. And Jesus comes into this world and he says, I'll take your death. Give me your cup. And he drinks the cup of the curse in our place. He dies condemned on the cross for the punishment that we should have experienced for having rebelled against God. And then he rises again from the dead and he said, who wants with me? Who wants to follow me into life? That's what it means to repent and believe. We put our trust in Jesus. And then once we do that, I pray you'll do it this morning. If you haven't done it before, repent and believe. Put your trust in the one savior of the world. And once we do that, what's the promise for the future? For Christians, there is such a rich promise of the future and it has everything to do with the oppression that we see all around our world. You know, when we sing in December, we sing Advent hymns, don't we? I love that. And a lot of those Advent hymns, you can't tell if it's talking about the first coming or the second coming, the first Advent or the second Advent, because in some ways when Jesus came in his first coming, he said, let me give you a glimpse of what you'll see in fullness when I come again for all who trust me. And one of those songs that we sing talks about oppression and what Jesus will do. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's the promise. Evil and oppression. And that's just, that's just a Tuesday in the empire. That's still with us to this day. That's Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening in this world. And we bump into frustration, don't we? And you can sense there's frustration in this passage. As we come to the end of of this chapter, we're gonna see it, and I'll get there in just a second, but we're gonna meet Mordecai here in chapter two. We meet this guy named Mordecai. We're gonna find out a whole lot more about him. He's gonna stand up and do some awesome things that we'll see next week in chapter three. But here in this chapter, we learn just three things about Mordecai. Number one, he's Esther's older cousin. Number two, he loves Esther more than anything, and he's her adopted father because both of her parents died. And three, Mordecai is a guy who does the right thing even when it saves a bad king. Even when it saves a bad king. And this last one is where the frustration kicks in, right? Because look down in verse five. You see where I'm getting this from. Verse five tells us where he works. He works in the fortress of Susa. So what's happened in the ensuing moments of our chapter before we get to the end of the chapter is Esther gets married. She is chosen, favor is upon her from Xerxes. She becomes queen. Verse 17, you see a royal crown is going onto her head in verse 17. He throws a banquet, he cuts the taxes for the whole empire and then there's this huge Esther party and then after the party dies down, we find Mordecai there in verse 21. Look at it with me, verse 21. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, just call him Biggie and Terry, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. So this assassination plot 
happens to be taking place within earshot of Mordecai. This is one of those ways in which we're gonna see the hidden hand of God. Mordecai is in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Now, he doesn't know he's in the right place at the right time. He doesn't know what happens later on in this book. He's walking through the story. We're here above it. We can read where things are going. He's just gonna put one foot in front of the other and he's gonna say, you can't kill the king. Look, he's a slime ball. We all agree. He took my daughter. She wasn't at, he threw his dragnet and he caught my girl. I don't like this guy. I don't trust him as far as I can throw him, but you can't kill him. You see, he's doing a good thing, a righteous thing for a very bad person, a person for whom he might understandably have a huge grudge. I heard a sermon um, years ago and I went back and looked up the title because I thought it was clever and it was. It was a sermon on Esther 2 and it was preached at Southern Seminary by a preaching professor and he called the sermon, entitled it, For Such a Slime as This, (laughs) describing Xerxes. He's a slime ball. Nobody knows it better than Mordecai and yet Mordecai saves the man's life. Xerxes would be none the wiser if this plot were hatched and he's offed. And yet Mordecai keeps that thing from happening, right? And, and here's where the frustration comes in. Mordecai saves the life of the most powerful jerk on earth and nobody thanks him. He, nobody parades him through the streets, not today. And he doesn't know that that's ever gonna happen. His name goes into a file cabinet, dusty file bin in the basement. And nobody knows what he did. And like so many others in scripture and in history, we're left to ask this second burning question. Does goodness matter? Does goodness matter? You you can sense the, um, the complaint of God's oppressed people in the Old Testament when they ask questions like this. This is Jeremiah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. He says, he's talking to God. I plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then Job says something similar. He says, the tents of robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure. Why why do I bother doing the righteous thing when it never changes my situation one bit? You, You remember maybe if you saw Fiddler on the Roof where there's that sort of question where a terrible thing has happened to him and he, he cries out toward heaven and he says, I know we are your chosen people, but maybe for once you could choose someone else, right? That sense of, is this what happens when we serve you? Is this what happens to faithful people? Tell me, why would I keep being faithful in this kind of world? So what shape, what, in what way does that shape us as we think about the Christian life in a very hard and oppressive world. Friends, let me exhort you in this way. We don't decide what to do based on a certain likely outcome of blessing. Our next move is determined by the word of God, not what happens next. We are faithful to our king, we are faithful to his word, and we let the chips fall where they may. What happens next is up to the Lord and his providence and in his sovereignty. We don't decide based on what's gonna happen. The end doesn't justify the means. There's already a name for that and it's not Christianity. It's called relativism. 
That's not Christianity. Our moral compass is determined by the Bible. So know the Bible. (laughs) Know his word. Grasp what his word says about the shape of your life as a disciple of Jesus, about the attitudes in which we inhabit this world. What are the attitudes that mark Christians in this world? Read Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit's at work in our lives, when he's in control, when he's at the driver's seat of your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look, that's a list long enough for you to live the rest of your life with lots to do. That list will keep you busy for the rest of your life, and that, that list will make you look a lot different than what we see in the world, and sadly, what we see in the church. We do what's right because the Lord is honored when we trust and obey and leave the outcomes in his hands. So Tuesday morning, oppression. Tuesday evening, frustration. And all day Tuesday, confusion. And this is where your heart just breaks as you read the story. You try to climb into the story and look around and looming behind the entire story of Esther is the reality of exile. Exile. Verse 5. So we learn Mordecai is a Benjamite. He's a son of Kish. And in verse six, we find out how that tribe, those people who lived in Judah, ended up hundreds of miles away in the capital of Persia, the winter palace of Persia. How did this Jewish family end up in Susa? Look at verse six. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Now that's how it reads in the English Bible, but you know, in the original language of the Hebrew, it keeps using one Hebrew word and a a form of that Hebrew word over and over and over so that it drills the point into our minds. I'll read it to us based on the kind of literal Hebrew, and it would read this way. Look down to verse six, but here's what it says. Kish had been exiled into exile from Jerusalem with the other exiles when King King Nebuchadnezzar exiled King Jeconiah of Judah into exile, right? It's just driving that point. Exile, exile. It's letting you see exiles written on all the walls around the citadel. Exile, and exile started. The street date for exile was 100 years ago. 586 BC, down everything went. Temple in ruins, people carted off bust out of town, hundreds of miles away, weeping by the river Kibar, hanging up their harps on the willow trees and saying, who can sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? That's Psalm 137. Exile is why a Jewish man happens to be named Mordecai. That is not a Jewish name. That's a Babylonian name. It's actually taken from the primary Babylonian god, Mardukah. Mordukai. He's named after a Babylonian god. How'd you get a name like that being from the tribe of Kish? Well, I was born here, so. Exile is behind Mordecai's counsel when he says, Esther, hey, lay low. Get down. Don't tell them where you're from. Don't show them your paperwork. Don't tell them that you're a Jewish girl. Don't tell them that, right? There's a Japanese proverb that says, the nail that sticks up too far gets hammered. And that's what Mordecai's basically saying. I need you to lay low. You are in great danger. Esther, in other words, Esther, if they set non-kosher food in front of you, eat it like you mean it. 
ask for second helpings. Convince them. The nail that sticks up gets hammered. That's exile talking, right? You imagine the identity crisis? There's only one place in this entire book called Esther that we find out the girl's real name. It's in verse seven, you see it? Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. You, you sense this identity crisis. Who is she? She has no parents. She's been sucked into the dragnet. Now she's living in the harem quarters of the king of the world, living life in the empire. It's giving us a sense of what it feels like, the dangers, the threats on every side. Living in this world, right, we're bumping into things, questions that shape our lives in this world in powerful ways. What are those questions? Does God see? Does he see what's happening to me and in this world? Does goodness really matter? And lastly and most importantly, the burning question, who am I? Who am I? You know, it's easy to, to parachute into Esther too and give her a lecture on courage and say, you know, you know who, ate, who didn't eat the king's food? Daniel. Daniel didn't eat the king's food. You think Daniel would go cozy up with the king? No, he ended up in a lion's den. Maybe that's what you should do, right? It's, it's not like we, we can force all those things into this particular world. It's a different situation, right? The reality of exile, once we live into it and we look at what's going on here in this harem and the dragnet and all the rest, it helps us toss out our visions of how awesome I'd be in this situation, right? Because that's kind of the, that's the sneaky thing that's going on in our hearts when we read in that way, Right? The reality of exile allows us to climb in and sympathetically say, she's like 14. She has no parents. She answers to a Babylonian name and also to Hadassah. Give the girl a minute. Give her a minute. She's got to figure some stuff out. And by the way, the only person who's given her counsel for her entire life since both of her parents died is now far away, and she can only talk to him through the bushes when she's out of the courtyard of the harem. Now, Esther, Esther isn't a book where God comes in like the 82nd Airborne, where he kicks the doors off their hinges in some other ways, like you see in the book of Exodus, for example, and he takes the kingdoms of this world by force. No, Esther reminds us of some things that we'll read later on in the words of Jesus, where he says, you want to know what the kingdom is like? The kingdom is like leaven and it gets inside the dough and give it a minute. It starts to work its way out, it starts to rise. You give it some time, it may start small, but it's rising. It may seem weak, but it's growing. And by the time we get to the end of Esther, she is running the race. She knows her identity. She knows she is with the people of God and she's gonna fight for her. But today, leaning's gonna have to count. Today, she is leaning on the everlasting arm. She is leaning on the counsel of Mordecai and we get to cheer for her as we see her leaning forward in this moment. Look, some of you, Hardship and trials have been so acute, or maybe not acute, maybe just chronic, just protracted and drawn out forever, and it's made your feet so heavy that you might be saying this morning, 
You know, my main goal this week, I don't have aspirations to run. I'm not sure I'll be able to put one foot in front of the other. Leaning is my goal this week. Leaning on the Lord, depending on his promises. And I wanna say to you, that's your plan. That's a fantastic plan. That's a great plan. Because the leaven gets in and the leaven starts rising. Our trust in God. The kingdom comes like a mustard seed and then it starts growing. So what does it look like for you to lean this week? Here's how. Will you trust that God sees what's hard and he's working in it for your good? That is you leaning. Will you do the right thing because it's right, not because it'll get you places? That's you leaning. Will you live this week out of your true identity as a child of God through faith in Jesus? That's leaning. And in your waiting and in your leaning, God is working. The hidden hand of providence, he's working.